0: So this is a snapshot of the the book of Numbers up to the point where we're picking up today. We're picking up in chapters 13 and 14. And um, what I want us to see is when we get to chapters 13 and 14, the the people of Israel have been journeying from Mount Sinai and they're getting to the wilderness of Paran. So we're in the kind of the second stage uh, of the journey of the Israelites in the book of Numbers. But here's what we need to know, is that they spent a year at Mount Sinai. And so this isn't something that just happened really quick. They camped out at Mount Sinai for a year, and while they were there, they were building this tabernacle that you saw in the video. Tabernacle was just this, this tent where God's presence would literally come down in like a cloud or a pillar of fire at night, and it would rest over the tabernacle and be at the center of their camp so they would know that God was with them. And then, after they, also at Mount Sinai, we have the book of Leviticus that comes between Exodus and Numbers. So, the book of Leviticus is where God gives them a lot of ways of living so that his presence can be amongst them. Over and over in Leviticus, God says, I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. And so he's showing them how to live when the holy God lives in your midst. Now, when the people pack up camp, they break down the tabernacle and they start moving towards the promised land, we are looking at a very different group of people than we first encountered in the book of Exodus. You see, these people, God has changed them dramatically ever since they were slaves in Egypt. And there's several different ways that they are different. One of the ways that they are different is that now they worship differently. You see, God has given them a way to encounter him and a way to engage with him meaningfully uh, uh, through a system of sacrifices and he's given them a priesthood and all these things. And sometimes we will look at Leviticus or we'll look at Exodus and all the things that God wanted them to do. And it's easy for us Uh, with our modern mindsets, to read all the things that God gives them to do. And if we're not careful, we'll go, man, why was God putting such a heavy burden on the Israelites? Like all these random laws and all these sacrificial systems that seem really hard and difficult, why was he doing that? But in reality, what God was doing was giving the Israelites this gift. You see, we first met them in Israel. They did not have a system of religion. They had no way of interacting with God. All they had was the promise that there was a God a God that had made a promise to their great-great-great-great-grandfather. But they knew of no way to, to interact with him, to worship him. And so he's giving them this system of worship. He's giving them the tabernacle. They're, they're different because their camp is now arranged differently. As you saw in the video, they've reorganized the way they structure themselves as a group of people. And so all these ways, we see the Israelites, they are a radically different people than they were when they left Egypt because of God's activity in their midst. And all of this points us to God's goal in working with the nation of Israel. You see, God's goal from the very beginning has been that he would be able to dwell amongst humanity. He wants humanity to be able to dwell with him. And it's not just the Israelites, but he wants the whole earth, all of humanity, to be able to dwell with him, the holy God. So when we get to today's story, we've got this nation that is on the move, they've packed up their tabernacle, the presence of God is going before them, and God is leading them into the purposes that he has. So let's jump in, chapter 13, starting in verse 1, they've come to the wilderness of Paran, and this is what we start with. It says, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. And then we have this list of 12 names. And so there's just a couple things that I want us to see in these first uh, three verses of chapter 13. The first one is this. I want you to notice that when God sends these spies out, he sends them out with kind of an implied promise. He says, hey, send them out to the land that I am giving them there's no like, hey, send them out to see if you think this land is good, or no, send them out to see if you think you can take it. It's like, no, send them out to see the gift. God is like showcasing the great gift that he's about to give to his people. So he says, send 12 spies out to check out the land that I am giving to them. It is a promise. This is gonna be real important, this idea of God making this future promise for the Israelites. We'll come back to that later. The other thing I want us to see in these first four verses uh, it's just there's some names in this random list of names uh, that follows that, that. The two names I want you to be aware of are a guy named Joshua and a guy named Caleb, and these two names are going to be important as we continue through the story of the Israelites. And we'll see Caleb uh, especially in the story uh, tonight. So, so these 12 men, Caleb, Joshua, and these 10 others, they they get up, they pack up their stuff, and they start heading up into the promised land to check out the land that God is going to give the Israelites. And as they go, they go into all the different areas of the promised land to see if it really is as God said it was, because God has been telling them that this is a good land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this week I got really curious because that's one of those phrases I've heard my whole life about the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. And I was just kind of like, I don't even know what that means. I mean, what does that mean to be flowing with milk and honey? So apparently that was just a phrase that they used to describe a land where the goats were plentiful and the vegetation was ripe. And so they come into this land, and I guess they're just looking for goats and looking for a lot of farms, but they discover that the land is indeed flowing with milk and honey. In fact, they come to this one valley, and they, they find a cluster of grapes that is so large. You saw this in the video that they had to string it up on a stick between two men to carry because the cluster was so heavy. I've never seen a cluster of grapes like that in my life. I mean, that is... That is huge. That's a huge cluster of grapes. And so these men, they get these grapes, they see the land, and they make their way back to the people of Israel at the wilderness of Paran to kind of share what they've seen. And we're going to pick up in verse 26. This is the report that they bring back to Moses. It says, The spies came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly, and they showed them the fruit of the land. Check out these grapes! That's what they're saying. And then they gave Moses this account We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does indeed flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And at this point, as you listen to them give their report, it sounds a little bit like you can sense this anticipation, this excitement. We've seen the land, and it is good. And you're kind of just, you want to get up with them and move up into that land, but then something changes in the next verse, the report, the tone of their voices, the tone of what they're reporting begins to change. Look at verse 28, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and they're very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. I want you to see what they're doing here they're going through each part of this promised land and they're saying, Listen, everywhere we went, we saw other inhabitants. We saw people that lived there and they didn't just live there but they lived in these large cities that were fortified. There is no way. You start to feel this this fear creeping into their language. Yes, the land is good but man, let me tell you who's living there right now. And Caleb, this guy that we mentioned earlier, immediately sees what's happening and I want you to see what he does in verse 30. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and he said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. He's trying to inject what is starting to feel a little bit like a scary situation with some hope. In verse 31, look what happens. But the men who had gone up with him, they said, we cannot attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they began to spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those that are living in it. And all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim, The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will surely be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What I want us to see in this story real quick is just the power of fear. The power that fear has over people. You see, they started off their story saying, yes, the land was good, but then they started to talk about the people that lived there, and it was as if Caleb could see the fear creeping into their eyes, and he tried to intervene before it was too late. But these people were so gripped with fear of the inhabitants of the promised land that they actually began to change their story about the promised land. No longer is it a good land, but they start spreading rumors among the Israelites that it was not a good land. In fact, they start saying it's a bad land. They start saying, hey, this land we're going into is like carnivorous and it will destroy you, devour you, open up its mouth and eat you. And the land is full of giants. So these people, the the Nephilim, they were a legendary race of people that that were thought to be massive, you know, just these gigantic people. And so they start saying, listen, this land is full of the Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. And they just start spreading their fear amongst the people of Israel. And before you know it, they're saying, you know what, let's just go, let's just go back to Egypt. I mean, this is crazy talk. They've been out of Egypt for over a year now. They have have seen God bring water from a rock so they could drink. They've seen God provide food on the morning dew when they wake up in the morning. They have seen God part the Red Sea. They have seen God over and over and over again show himself to be faithful. And yet fear creeps in and they change their mind about the whole thing. But what I want us to see here is that this fear on the surface, it looks as though they're afraid of the giants, of the people in the land. But really what's at work is what is underlying their fear. You see, their fear reveals their doubt in the power that comes with God's presence. Their problem is not their fear, it's what's underneath it. They fear because they do not have confidence or faith in the goodness and sufficiency Of God's presence among them. If they really believed that God's presence was as good as it really is, there's no way they would have been afraid to move into this land. They would have known that God would surely give it to them. But we see that they're doubting the goodness of God's presence, and what follows this feels almost like a sequel to Exodus 32 and 33. God becomes so frustrated with these people. He looks at them and he comes to Moses, if you read in verse 11 and 12, he comes to Moses and he says, Moses, how long, how long will these people treat me with contempt? He said, how long will I put up with them? I have shown them sign after sign after sign after sign to show them that I'm faithful and that I'm with them and yet they still continue to spit in my face. Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe them all out. I am going to destroy these people that I've brought out, but I will be faithful to my promise. Moses, I will raise you up, and I will make your name great, and your family will inherit the promised land. And so God, we begin to see the the justice of God who brings consequences for actions, but we also see his faithfulness at work. But what I love that happens here is what we see is Moses has this opportunity to be made great, It's this opportunity to be made something special. God said, I will raise you up and make you great. But Moses does not seize an opportunity for the greatness of his own name. Instead, he leverages his intimacy with the Father for the greatness of God's name. And he leverages his intimacy with the Father for the sake of the Israelite people. So you read in verse 17 to 19, Moses comes, he starts praying to God and he appeals to the qualities of God that God has revealed to him. He says, God, no, don't do this or you will be ridiculed among the nations. In verse 17, he says, no, but may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving in sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Verse 19, in accordance with your great love, God, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt to now. And I love this. We see God's heart responsive to a humble heart and prayer of Moses. And so God relents. He says, okay, Moses, I will not wipe them out. I will show my kindness. I will show my mercy. And that I will not wipe out these people. And yet we also still see the justice of God. Because he says, here's what's gonna happen. My promise will be fulfilled, my faithfulness will be carried out, and the nation of Israel will enter the promised land, but this generation will not enter the promised land. No, he says, this generation, because they have repeatedly treated me with contempt. they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that the spies were in the promised land. And so this is kind of the story that we see unfolding in Numbers 13 and 14, there, there are two great rebellions that happened in the story of the Exodus. The one is the one we looked at last week, where they build the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai, and this is the second. And this is the one that costs an entire generation a life in the promised land because they continue to refuse to trust in the goodness of God's presence in their midst. Now the question we have to ask is what in the world do we as modern readers do with this story? Because, I mean, this happened over 3,000 years ago, and, and I doubt there's many of us that can relate very personally with the experience of the Israelites here. Has anybody ever been sent out to spy out a land that you and your entire nation was going to go conquer in a few days? I don't think any of us have ever done that. Like, I've never done that. I've never seen God in a pillar of fire. I've never seen him in a pillar of cloud. Like I, I've never talked to God face to face where I see him like Moses did. So, so what do we as modern readers do with this story? And I'll tell you, sometimes we are tempted to read these stories in the Old Testament that we don't understand, that feel so foreign and so unfamiliar to us. And we are tempted to treat them as though they are just like an allegory or a parable from which we are to draw principles about who God is or how to live a good life. And if we're not careful, we're tempted to look at this story and just go, hey, you too can have a promised land. You too can have a great marriage and all your financial stability that you can need. All of your dreams can come true as long as you don't operate off of fear and operate out of faith and God will bless you. But there's a lot of problems with that kind of conclusion coming from a story like that, a lot of problems. I just wanna highlight one of them. One of them is that we're treating this historical event as though it is just a myth or a fable to help us understand an idea of God. But you see, the reality is this is not a myth, fable, or allegory. This is a historical story of historical events that happened with a true group of people, the Israelites, and they involved a true and living God. You see, this story is not about a God who is just an idea. The story, the one we've been in for weeks now, it is the story about a God who is, a God who is alive, a God who is active, a God, the same God that we read about in the book of Numbers is the same God that we experience today, that we walk with today, the same God that is at work today, the same God that has been at work from the very beginning of creation, And see, God, this God that we read about, He has been working for one aim and one goal and one purpose. And this is what we said at the very beginning. God's aim is so that humanity could dwell with Him. He longs to have relationship with humanity. Everything He's been doing has been leveraging His power, His glory, His might to have relationship with humanity that is marked by friendship, with peace, and with harmony. But instead, the relationship of humanity with God, because of sin, has been marked by enmity and brokenness. And that's what we see unfolding in this story. See, God is not a God who's sitting in the clouds just watching us, waiting for us to mess up so that he can zap us. Sometimes it's like we imagine God is like a cop who set up a great speed trap, ready to catch someone going by so he could write some tickets and they get joy out of giving fines to this everyday driver. That is not what our God is like. He is far from, from eager to catch us in our screw-ups. No, instead, He is not eagerly waiting to catch us in our screw-ups. Instead, He is, he is actually leveraging all of His power. He is eager to erase our screw-ups He is eager to make us right with him. This is the God that we read about in the Bible. And in this story that we've been reading, we see God unfolding this plan so that he could dwell in the presence of humanity. We see this first in the tabernacle. It's this ornate tent that the Israelites spent a year designing, decorating, crafting, and putting together so that God could dwell in their midst. And so they see the presence of God right in the middle of their camp what's beautiful is you read through the whole story of the Bible, you're gonna see that God is not satisfied with just a tabernacle that is in the middle of one nation for them to have his presence. Now, if you keep reading the story, you get to this guy named King Solomon. And King Solomon decides, no, it's not enough for God to dwell in a tent. He said, God needs something more. And so God gives Solomon permission to build a solid structure, a huge, magnificent, glorious building, the temple of God in the middle of Jerusalem. And now the presence of God Abides in the midst of this powerful nation so that all of the nations can see the presence of God in their midst. And so God has gone from tabernacle, a tent, to temple, a glorious building. But he's not finished. He's not done with this glorious building. If you keep reading through the Bible, the whole story, you get to the New Testament. This amazing thing happens in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word, who is God, becomes flesh. And made his dwelling among us. The God, the God of the universe, has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. And this word dwelling, literally, the literal word was tabernacle. So what John was saying is listen, no more is is God just in a tabernacle, no more is he just in a building or a temple. But now the God of the universe has put on flesh and he has come to tabernacle among humanity as a person, the man Jesus Christ. You see, God is pulling out all the stops so that he could come and have relationship with humanity, starting with a tent and then a temple, and now a human body in Jesus. And when we get to the end of Jesus's ministry, we see he's going even further than that. You see, Jesus has been crucified, he's been resurrected, and as he's getting ready to leave and go back to be with his father, he looks at his disciples and he says, hey, I will be with you always, I'll always be with you. And you got to imagine they were probably a little confused because right after Jesus tells them that he's going to always be with them, the Father takes them back to heaven and they can't see him anymore. And they're like, wait a minute. You just said you're going to be with us always. Like, what was that about? And so then we fast forward just a few weeks and we find the disciples worshiping and praying and the unthinkable happens. God pours out his very presence, not bound by a tabernacle, not bound by a building, not even bound to just one person, Jesus Christ, but no, he pours out his presence, his Holy Spirit into all of those who will put their faith in Jesus. So that now the presence of God is literally within his people everywhere they go. Do we understand the the implications, the beauty of this? God is giving to his people, The very thing that we saw Moses pleading for last week, remember Moses longed for intimacy with God, but God is now giving intimacy with his people. He's giving it in a form that Moses could have only dreamt of. He is coming to live within our hearts through his Holy Spirit, that when we put our faith in Jesus, the very presence of God lives in us so that we can have intimacy with God the Father. And so we become the tabernacle, we become the temple, we become the dwelling place of God Almighty so that everywhere we go, we have his presence with us. And we, like the Israelites, are journeying towards a promised land. See, our promised land, the promised land that God has been working towards the whole time is what Revelation 21 calls a new heaven and a new earth. This place where God comes and dwells face-to-face with humanity. This place where all things that are wrong get made new, where all things are made right, where all sorrow is undone, where all sadness is wiped away, where every tear is wiped away, where death no longer reigns, where everything that is painful is fixed and made right, and God lives with humanity. This is the promised land that we, the presence bearers of God Almighty, are working towards. Now, if this just sounds too good to be true, I, get, I had a good friend in Vancouver when I lived up there. She, she was a Buddhist, and I was talking with her about this, and she was trying to say, hey, your faith, my faith, are basically the same. And I was like, no, the end game is very different. The end game is very different. And I described to her this new heaven and this new earth where everything is made right. And she just looked kind of dumbfounded. And she said, "I she said that's, not, that's just it's too good to be true. I was like, I, I know, but it is true. It's so good, it could only be dreamed up by the God Almighty, the God of the universe. And so we are the presence bearers of God, walking towards the promised land, much like the Israelites, working towards the new heaven and the new earth. Here's what I want us to see. There's this future promise, just like the Israelites. Remember God said, go into the land I am giving you. There's this future promise. Let me ask you this, did God give the Israelites the promised land? I'm getting ahead of us in the story a little bit, but the answer is yes. Book of Joshua, you read, God gives the promised land to the Israelites. And so to us, we answer, we have this future promise. Is God able? Is he faithful? Yes, he is leading us towards a new heaven and a new earth where everything will be made right. That's our future promise. But we also have this present promise, a promise for now, this promise that God's presence is with us living within us, the Holy Spirit of God. And you see what happens when that future promise and this present promise come together in our lives. We discover our divine purpose. We discover the reason that we are here, the reason that God gives us life, the reason that Jesus comes to know us. I want you to think about this. If, if the new heaven and the new earth has been God's end game the whole time, if that's his purpose, and he has been working towards that from the very beginning, and that same God lives within us, wouldn't it make sense that he has a place for us to play in partnering with him and ushering in the new heaven and the new earth? Did you know that? Did you know that as a follower of Jesus, who has the spirit of God living within you, that God longs for you to partner with him in actually ushering heaven into earth? This is not just this thing where we bide our time and wait until the very end when we hopefully will come back to life and live in heaven, sit on the cloud and strum a harp for the rest of our lives. Christianity is so much more than just trying to follow rules and a certain set of behaviors. It baffles me when sometimes we boil Christianity down to just an hour and a half on Sundays built around a sermon and song routine so that we can make sure that we're good with God. No, Christianity is nothing less than humanity partnering with the divine purposes of God to make all things new. Did you know that's your purpose? Do you know that? Do you know God's inviting you into that? future promise, present promise coming together, giving us divine purpose. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, listen, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on where? Earth as it is in heaven. The future promise invading earth. This is why Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he said, hey, I want you to go out into the villages, heal the sick, cast out the demons, raise the dead, preach the repentance of sins. He says, says, when you do this, tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. See, it's not this far off hope. It's not as far off as we think it is. No, Jesus says, whenever you see these things happening, the kingdom of God has come near. We get to partner with God in ushering heaven into earth. It's our divine purpose. It's what we're called to. It's why Christianity is an adventure. Why following Jesus is exciting and not something that is dull. But here's the thing. Just like the Israelites were susceptible to doubt and fear derailing them from the promise God had for them, we too can be susceptible to doubt and fear. You see, fear has this way of derailing us from living into the promises God has for us. Now, let me be very clear about this. Nothing, nothing, can stand between God and his promises. And just the essence of who God is is that he is faithful and he cannot be stopped in carrying out his promises. And when he promises that there is a new heaven and a new earth, it is coming to pass. And when he promises that he is with us always, he is with us always. But you see, our doubt and our fear can sometimes creep in and cause us to rearrange our life in such a way that we miss out on the promise that God is holding out to us so freely. Our promises and our buy-in to these promises can be undone through fear. And just like the Israelites, sometimes those fears are underlined by doubts. And he, he, here's, here's what I want us to see is that sometimes we start to, to doubt. We say, okay, well, God made this promise that he's with me always. And we'll start to go, well, is he really with me? And the ways that we doubt his presence isn't just that we sit around going, God, are you here or are you not? The way that we doubt his presence is maybe we, we first start to doubt his provision, we say, okay, God has said he's with us. He's gonna provide all, everything that I need. He's, he has called me that as I partner with him in ushering in heaven, he's called me to radical generosity because that's part of heaven invading earth. This is what we see in the early believers, right? They shared everything they had with one another. They were radically open-handed with their material belongings. Heaven was coming near to earth. And yet when we fear, when we doubt God's ability to provide, then slowly we start to close our hands over the things that God has given us. Because, oh man, but if, I, if I'm generous with this, I, I have to let go of it. And what if, I don't, what if I don't give it back? Or what if God isn't good for his word? And, and slowly we start tightening our, our grips around our ability to usher in heaven through radical generosity. Sometimes we, we start to doubt his protection. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people that felt like God was calling them into something. Maybe it was a short-term mission trip. Maybe it was to pack up and move to another country, or maybe it was just to go across the street and talk to their neighbor about the love of Christ. And they feel really called to step into it, and yet fear or doubt begins to creep in because they start to doubt, man, I don't know, what if, what if something happens, what if there's a risk involved? It feels dangerous. And we start to doubt whether or not God can really protect us through his presence as we move into the things that he's calling us to, to partner with him in ushering heaven. in. And so we doubt his provision. We, we doubt his protection. Sometimes we begin to doubt his power. We say, How can God really do the things that he said he's going to do? I, I think about a young woman that I knew in Oregon. My wife and I did campus ministry at the University of Oregon for a couple of years, and we worked with a largely international student body uh, that we were working with, uh, students from all over Asia. And my wife started a Bible study with some of the young women from Asia that had never studied the Bible before. And so Amy, if you know her, she, she knows the Bible really well, but she doesn't know a whole lot of what it's like to be a young Asian woman. I mean, if you've ever seen Amy, she's very clearly not a young Asian woman. So she, did not, she knew she needed some help and understanding how to relate to them. So she asked another young woman in the campus ministry, a young woman that had been a Christian for many years, if she would be willing to help her lead this Bible study. She was from Indonesia. And I'll never forget this young woman looked at Amy and she was just like, ah, I don't, I can't, I can't do that. Like, I'm not, I don't know enough. I'll mess it up. I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't think, I don't, no, you need to ask somebody else. I'm not the right person for the job. And Amy could see the fear creep over her face of stepping into something new stepping into new territory. And let me just tell you, here's what I know. I I still love her very much. I continued to love her. She continued to be a part of our campus ministry. God still loves her tremendously. But her fear, her doubt that God could actually work through her caused her to miss out on one of the divine purposes that God had for her of ushering, watching heaven be ushered into these other young women's lives as some of them gave their life to Jesus. You see, she wasn't afraid of her own inability. Underneath that, at the core, she, had, she questioned whether or not God could really use someone like her. Is God really able to work through someone like me? Is His presence really enough? Is it sufficient? Is it good enough? And yet others of us doubt our own merit and our own ability to step into what God has. Some of us think, Aaron, I know you think God has a divine purpose for me, but Aaron, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where i've been you don't know the things that i've said you don't know the people that i've hurt you don't know the awful things that i've done but let me tell you god knows all the things that you've done and he wants so badly for you to step into the divine purposes that he has for you he wants it badly enough that he crawled up onto a cross and suffered all the weight all the shame that has come about because of our activities he took on his own shoulders And he says, listen, your past means nothing to me. I can make you new. I have something more for you. I have a future promise and I have a present promise for you. I will come to live in you because of Jesus Christ and you will meet your divine purpose. There's nothing our God can't do when he comes to live within us. If we will just put our faith in him and cast our doubts aside. Now listen, I wanna be real clear about doubts. I know many of us wrestle with doubt. I wrestle with doubt. The way that we wrestle with doubt is what's important. You see, when we wrestle with doubt, some of us will hitch our doubts to fear. But we need to hitch our doubts to faith. And here's what that looks like, that in the middle of being uncertain, okay, God, I think you're with me, but I'm not 100% certain. In the middle of our doubts, we come back to God and his promises. Kind of like Moses when he came to pray, God, this is who you've said you are. Will you be true to this? We hitch our doubts to faith. And when things don't seem to be going right, When it seems like that future promise is so far off, we keep leaning back against the promises of God and his faithfulness, and he sustains us even in our doubts. But when we hitch our doubts to fear, we risk being completely derailed for the promises that God is holding out to us so open-handedly. Here's the question I want all of us to wrestle with tonight. The first one is this, did you know? Did you know that God longs for you to partner with him. If you're going, I, I can't do it, you're right, you can't do it, but he can do it in you. Do you know that? Do you know that he longs for you to partner with him in ushering heaven into the lives of the people around you? Another question is this: Are we doing it? Are we partnering with God to usher heaven into earth? Or is fear preventing us from moving forward into the promises that God has for us? I know that there are some opportunities for all of us to partner with God in this way. I know, one, because there's going to be an opportunity next week for all of us. Next week, we we have this opportunity to partner with God and ushering heaven into the lives of hundreds of orphans in India. See, we have this opportunity to come and give, and through radical generosity, give towards uh, the, the lives of these orphans as they get discipleship in Jesus, as we provide meals for them, as we provide education for them. But if we as a church want to be able to do this, we need to step in confidence and in hope and in faith that God is a good provider. Because if he's a good provider, then we can let go of some of what he's given us so that we can bless these orphans that are across the world from us. But that's just one way for us to do it together. I know that there are some ways that God is calling you and inviting you in to partner with him in bringing heaven to earth. The question we have to ask is, will we have faith that he can do it in us? you're a christian and you've had fear just just come back it's okay let the doors wide open just step back in you can do that tonight take communion confess to somebody i've been afraid i've let doubt rule me and just take communion pray for one another if you've never given your life to jesus you can do that tonight you can give your life to him and buy into the future promise and receive the present promise and start living into your divine purpose So here's what this is gonna look like. We have communion on the bar, on the tables, all around the room. We'll take the cup, we'll take the bread, we'll pray for one another. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna worship and we are going to experience the presence of God Almighty in our midst and he will fill our hearts with courage and call us to step into him with faith. So I'm gonna pray for us and let's just worship, let's pray, let's commune together as we celebrate the presence of God. God, we love you. I praise you for who you are. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being a God of promises. Thank you for a future promise that we can look to. But thank you also for giving us a present promise of your nearness right now. God, would you give us the gift tonight of your very real presence in our midst. As we gather in the name of Jesus, full of your spirit, would you just pour out your presence on this room. Equip us, Lord, with the faith and the courage we need to go into this world and partner with you in all the ways you present to us. Love you, Father, and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.